Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Well, we started last week with living life on purpose, mainly because, and I've seen this, you see it a lot with natural people, and by natural people I mean non-Christians, but I've also seen it with Christians where just lead our lives wherever life takes you, you know, you go with the flow, you drift along, you know, you react, basically you just react to the circumstances of life, and I don't believe that's what God's called us to do. So let's go back real quickly and just hit a couple of scriptures. In Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 1, says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never... That's a pretty definite statement there. Can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect or mature. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. And that really is the, the, the essence of what I tried to get across last week. That is the biggest battle that most Christians face in their life is getting rid of this consciousness of sins. And, and part of the reason that we have that is we continually want to go back and put ourselves under the law. And I don't mean that quite literally where you, you know, you're going and making sacrifices, but when you have an attitude that every time you do something wrong or every time you screw up, you have to make restitution for that. You have to make up for that. That is the essence of the law. The essence of the law is when the law gets broken, you have to pay a price. Well, there is a principle of sowing and reaping. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap from the flesh. And we're not denying that. But as far as the penalty of breaking the law or being a lawbreaker, the law kept making the same sacrifices over and over again. In fact, if you read on in verse 3, it says, But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Why? Because it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. If the law, if the sacrifices of the law, and the law was holy, it was righteous, but if the sacrifices of the law could remove the penalty of sin, then they would have quit. So where were we? Well, if you drop back down to verse 9, well, let's take it up at verse 8. It says, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. When Jesus came into the world, he didn't come with the express <clears throat> purpose of, of fulfilling the law. That was not his purpose. Now, he did fulfill the law, but his purpose in coming to the earth was simply to follow the will of God. And he followed it perfectly, and in following it perfectly, he fulfilled the law. And then when he went to the cross, his sacrifice, his blood, paid the price for all time. Every sin was forgiven. It didn't just cover the sins, which is what the, the, the blood of bulls and goats did. It covered over your, over your sins from one year to the next year. Or if you, if you came and made a sacrifice for something that you knew you had done wrong, which they did that con constantly, then that particular sin would get covered. But even for those that didn't get covered by individual sacrifices, the high priest went in once a year, killed a bullock. The blood of that bull covered the sins of the nation. 
And they were all under the covering. But they were just covered up. It's kind of like when you were a kid and your mom told you to clean the room. And your idea of cleaning the room was just to pull the, the rug up, sweep everything up under the rug. The room was still dirty. You didn't get the dirt out. You just got it out of sight. And for a lot of us, that's all that we care about. We want to get the sin out of sight so that we don't have to deal with it because, Lord have mercy, I can't deal with the fact that I would do something wrong. That's when anytime there's a conflict between people, if you boil it all down in the end, if there's an argument between people, it always comes down to who did wrong and everybody wants to defend what they did. And so-and-so did me wrong. So-and-so said this. So-and-so did this. And I got offended because it's their fault. Well, who cares? It's all under the blood. And if, if I'm not perfect, and, and part of the reason that people take such terrific stands and hold grudges for so long is because they're in their mindset they cannot take the thought that they are not perfect or they are at fault. And when it comes down to it, there's not a relationship in the world where you're not at fault. You want to know who... who um, is responsible for all of the divorces? The husbands and wives that got divorced. You can't blame it on the husbands. You can't blame it on the wives. It's a mutual thing. The only difference between a marriage that ends in divorce and one that ends without divorce is that the ones that didn't divorce didn't give up. Now, I'm not throwing out guilt. Sometimes divorce is inevitable. Sometimes one partner walks away and there's nothing the other partner can do. But both are at fault every time. And it's not just in marriages. It's in everyday relationships. Why? Because we have this consciousness of sin. And if we have a consciousness of sin, we want to justify ourselves. And when what we actually need to do is get God's justification in our hearts and in our minds and realize it doesn't matter that I failed. It doesn't matter that I did something wrong. Of course I did. But it's under the blood. I still can serve Jesus. I still can get past it. I can go, no matter what the relationship, the strain in any relationship, I can go and say, I'm sorry. I know I did something wrong. I may not know what it is. It's like the old joke where the guy knows he's in trouble with his wife. So he goes and sits down and says, honey, we need to talk. Okay, what do we need to talk about? Well, I need you to tell me what I did wrong so I can tell you what I'm sorry for. Well, that's kind of silly. But at the same time, it's not. Because believe me, you can say something that in your mind, it's just innocent. And it can wreak havoc in another person. Because you're approaching the situation from one angle, they already have a history of something that may have been sounded similar, may have come in a similar circumstance, and they're seeing your comment from their point of view, and it, it brings up issues and pushes buttons that you have no idea are even there. And they're terribly hurt and they're terribly offended, and you didn't mean any of it. Well, if I didn't mean it, then I'm not at fault. Yes, you are. <laughs> you hurt them. Whether you meant to or not, you hurt them. Well, we need to get past this so that we can live our lives free of the guilt of sin because we are free of the guilt of sin. Let me read it again. Up in verse 2, the, the last part of verse 2, for the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. That's what the new covenant is all about. Jesus paid the price for our sins once for all, and once we accept his forgiveness, we should walk at, with no consciousness of sin. All we should be conscious of is His righteousness. I said it last week. If you camp at the foot of the cross, if you see your sins and your sins on, of, of, on Jesus on that cross are more powerful than the blood of Jesus you see and come off that cross, then you've got a wrong view of the cross. 
how do we do that? Well, you're there in, in Hebrews 10. Drop down to verse 16. This is part of the answer, and there are many facets of this. In verse 16 of Hebrews 10, he says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. We don't need the written law. Most people, when they want to deal with the law, they, they want to deal just with the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are right, they're good, they've never been revoked. But we don't live by the Ten Commandments. They're good guidelines, nothing wrong with them, great guidelines. But if you're going to live by the law, you've got six, over 600 laws in the Old Covenant that are just as valid and just as, as restrictive and just as, as have due. If you're going to follow that, you have to follow, follow all 600 of them. 600 plus. You can't just take the, the 10, and if you, if you boil all of the 10 down, Jesus said, you want to boil them all down, <clears throat> do no harm to your neighbor and walk in love. That's it. If you can do those two things, but you won't do them perfectly. No one ever has, no one ever will, with the exception of Jesus. So, let's get past that. Now, Go back here in Hebrews chapter six, or Hebrews 10. Go back to Hebrews chapter 6. How do we do this? Actually, I got ahead of myself. Go forward. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Because the question is, how do I get rid of this consciousness of sin? And how do I walk this out on a daily basis? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us. Starting in verse 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. When you're walking in faith, what you are wanting and what you are believing for, you don't actually have it in your life right then. That's what that verse says. The word there, substance, means the underpinning or the foundation. When your entire world is saying, this is not true, this is not true, this is not true, your faith says, it is true. I don't see it, but I've got it. Now, part of the problem, though, is, where is your faith? And I say that because we live in an age where lots of people will tell you, well, I'm not a Christian but I'm a person of faith. Or they will tell you, I am a Christian, and I'm believing for God to do some things in my life. And you will ask them, well, what scriptures are you standing on? Well, I don't have any particular scriptures. I just know Jesus is going to do this for me. Well, how do you know that? Well, I just know. Well, just knowing, to be blunt with you, is not enough. You have to have chapter and verse. You have to have a scripture that you can go to and say, this is the authority that I can claim this thing is in my life, even though I don't see it yet, even though I don't have it. I believe I have it, and it's coming. Because remember, it says it's the, it's the substance of things hoped for. The hoped for is future tense. But it's not hope in the sense that the world uses hope. The world uses hope in, man, I'm a wishing and a hoping, and it really would be nice if this comes in, but I really don't know if it is or it's, it's not. Bible hope looks a whole lot like Bible faith. Bible hope says it's out there, and I believe I have it, and I know it's coming. And I don't know when it's going to manifest, but I believe right now it's mine. But you can't have Bible faith if you don't have Bible. And it, to be honest with you, I really wish Paul, and, and I, I don't care who, who anybody thinks Hebrews, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. If he didn't, it doesn't matter. But... I believe it would have been better if Paul had said, Now, faith in the Bible 
is the substance of things hoped for. Part of the problem is there was no Bible that we have. It was still being written. It hadn't been compiled yet. We had the Old Testament. Some people had some of Paul's letters, some of the early writings, but none of it had been assembled and put together and, and codified to where this is the canon of the Scripture. So it's, that's part of the reason he says it's just the substance. But what, what, how does this manifest itself? When you get real Bible faith, when you find a Scripture and you start ordering your life by that Scripture, what's the evidence? Well, verse 2, For by it, by this kind of faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds, and I went through this last week, at the end, the word there, the, the Greek word there for worlds does not mean planets. Does not mean the physical universe. It's the Greek word aeon. And pretty much everywhere else that it's translated is translated age. It means a period of time. So I'm going to read it that way. By faith we understand that the ages were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not, made of, or were not made of things which are visible. Well, what ages is he talking about? The ages of these elders. Each one of these elders, this is the, the heroes of faith, took a word from God. Let's look at verse 4. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. How did Abel offer a more, more excellent sacrifice. He listened. God said, Abel, and he also told Cain, both of them, he said, this is how I want you to sacrifice to me. And it was an individual thing. It wasn't written. They didn't have any of the Old Testament at that point. <clears throat> but God communicated to them, this is how I want you to bring sacrifices to me. They had a consciousness of sin. Mom and dad had told them, guys, we used to live in Eden. It was perfect, but we messed up. And now you're messed up because we messed up. And God came to Cain and Abel and said, your parents may have messed up and you inherited that mess up, but you can get out from under the penalties of that by bringing me sacrifices in this way. Abel obeyed. Cain did not. That's why Cain was jealous. Cain thought, well, that's okay, but I can do it better. I need to win a different way. But Abel had faith in the word that God gave him. And it was a very limited word. You can go through this whole chapter. And I don't know if you've, if you've recognized it before, but you have to go all the way down to verse 32 before you get to anyone who operated under the law of Moses. The vast majority of the people that this chapter lists as heroes of faith did not have the law of Moses. They just had a communication that God gave them for them. And they took that one word, and frame their entire life around one word from God. That's what he's telling us to do. Get a word from me and frame your life around that word. Now we have general words. We start out with salvation. You have got to accept Jesus' grace by faith. And if you do that, you become part of the family. And you're, you're, you're changed, you're reborn. The inside of you, there's a brand new creature, and that creature looks just like Jesus. That's a word that we get out of the Scriptures. That's the message, to be honest with you, that's the message that the church is supposed to take to the world. That there is salvation, there is a way to get out from under sin through the blood, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And if we take that, people will get born again. The problem is sometimes we, we want to complicate the message. We want to talk about, well, you know, this is wrong in your life, and this is wrong in your life, and your lifestyle's wrong here, and your lifestyle's wrong there. 
you know. You're a man and you're living with another man and having relations with that other man and that's just not right. Now this person over here, they're doing okay. Because they're, they're, they're living out of wedlock, but at least it's a man and a woman and you know, we don't have too big a problem with that. God has a problem with both of them. But God doesn't really have so much a problem with the way they live. He has a problem with the way they are. They are separated from Him. See, this is the irony. Jesus' message, the message of the cross, is don't clean up your life and come to me. His message is come to me, I will clean up your life. It's like sitting in a filthy car and lamenting, oh, my car's dirty, my car's dirty, I don't understand. Well, go get it washed. Clean it from the inside and then get the outside. People that want to face the law, that want to run by the law, they'll go through the car wash, have the outside washed, waxed, spotlessly clean, and the inside is a garbage dump. Well, the outside being clean tells the world, I'm pretty good. I got a sharp car. The inside being a, a, a pigsty, this is how I really am. That's why Jesus got after the Pharisees and he says, you're whitewashed sepulchers. You're, you, on the outside, you scrubbed your, your, your um, burial vault, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. If you ever go to a, few, or to a uh, cemetery, you'll find some mausoleums that, wow, they look great. I've been to some where somebody spent a lot of money to put a body in there. They're made out of marble. They glisten. They look nice. But you go up in the casket, nothing pretty inside that casket. Well, Jesus wants to resurrect what's inside the casket, and then eventually the outside will get clean. Amen? That's what we need to do, but we have to do it by faith. We have to get a word. First word you have to get is get saved. Once you get saved, then Jesus will start dealing with you individually about what you need to change in your life. And it won't happen overnight. I've always been amazed at people that pray, pray family or friends or acquaintances into the kingdom. And they get saved. And they expect in the next three months that they're going to be mature Christians and they'll have no problems in their life. And they just get amazed that, that, you know, they're still dealing with the same things that they dealt with before they got saved. I mean, my God, you've been, you've been uh, saved for three whole months. And I'm, I'm thinking, really? I know people have been saved for 20 years and they're still dealing with some issues. I've been saved. I'm 65. I've been saved since I was eight years old. Guess what? I still got issues. If I live to be 85, I will still have issues. I will have issues until the day I die. But the issues are the outside. They're the car. The inside of my car is spotlessly clean. That's where I live. The outside's picking up dirt all the time. That's why Jesus said, you know, when, when they came into one of the gatherings, he grabbed a towel, grabbed the water, and said, I'm going to wash all you guys' feet because you've been walking around in the dust. Your feet are dirty. And Peter, being the bright man that he was, said, Oh, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And he said, Well, Peter, if I can't wash your feet, i got nothing to do with you. Okay, well, then wash me all over. He said, I don't have to. You're already clean. But sometimes when we walk through the world, the muck and the mire from the world gets on us, and we need to get it washed off. We do that through 1 John 1, 9. We don't confess our sins to get forgiveness. We confess our sins to get ourselves past that so we can go serve God again. Now, if we're going to do this, how do I walk in faith constantly? Well, we saw one of them, Philippians 3.10, last week, one of the ways we do it. This is Paul in his letter to the Philippians. He said, one of his goals is that I may know him meaning Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. The, the word there, sufferings, the Greek word is pathema, meaning the passions. 
it does refer to, to what Jesus went through when he was beaten, when they thrust the crown of thorns on his side, when they hung him on the cross and he bled and he finally gave up his life. There is a reference there, but there is also a reference there to the passion. What made Jesus, what animated his life? When Jesus woke up in the morning, what was the first thing that came to his mind? First thing that came to his mind was, God, what do you want me to do today? Father, where are we going? Who am I going to talk to? That was his passion. We saw it in, in Hebrews. I came into the world to do your will, O God. Most of us, instead of waking up and saying, Lord, I want to do your will, O God, our first thing, our thought in our minds is, Oh God, it's morning. Well, we may have mornings like that, but when you get there, you need to say, Lord, what are you preparing for me today? Who am I going to see today? What circumstances am I going to have to face today? What scriptures do you want me to set myself on that I can get through the circumstances of the day and do your will? That has to be our mindset. You're there in Hebrews. Turn back to Hebrews 6. This is part of where we have problems, though. Hebrews chapter 6, let's go to verse 11. It says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. In other words, once you set yourself on this pathway of faith, I want you to stay on it until you get everything that you're supposed to have. And in verse 12 tells you the problems that we run into, though. That you do not become sluggish, or some translations say lazy. The, the, the Greek word there is nothos, where it can be translated neutral. Personally, I like that translation says that you not be, become neutral, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit, inherit the promises. Here again, he doesn't want us to shift in the neutral. If you've ever driven a car, especially a stick shift, I know there might be half a dozen of those left on the highway anymore, but even, in, even with an automatic, if you can put that thing in neutral while you're going down the road, I don't care how much gas you give that engine. You can put that thing on, you know, peg the gas pedal to the floor. If that transmission's in neutral, none of the power of the engine's going to get to the wheels and you're going to slow down and eventually stop. That's what Paul's talking about here. Don't put yourself in neutral. Don't just go with the flow. Don't just drift with your circumstances. Look at your circumstances. The ones that are going with God, increase those. The ones that, are, that are, are trying to pull you away from the will of God, stand against those and find Scripture and declare where you are going. Years and years ago, I was in a luncheon with Lester Summerall. And at the time, he was, um, he was only maybe 70 to 75, still a young man. And... He, was, he had a plane. He flew all over the world, all over the country. He'd preach somewhere on Sunday afternoon. He'd be in another church on Monday, another church on Tuesday. And he's got some 30, 40-year-old ministers that want to travel with him, pastors and ministers. And they'd jump in the plane with him, and they'd go for a week, and they'd say, well, i got to go back home now because I'm wore out. And he literally was wearing people out that were half his age. And being the bright guy I am, I just asked him. We had a question and answer session. There were probably 20 of us there in the luncheon. And I said, Brother Summerall, how do you do that? At your age, and I wasn't near his age, but I don't think I could have handled his schedule. I said, how do you do that? And in his typical grace-filled way, he said, when I get out of the bed in the morning, I don't ask myself how I feel. I tell my body how it's going to feel and what it's going to do, and it has to obey me. And I thought, not bad. And he lived a very healthful, very prosperous life up until his wife died, and within 
two, three, four weeks after his wife died, he was gone. And if you talk to his sons, they will tell you. After his wife died, he told them, I've done everything God's asked me to do. I don't want to live without her. I'm done going home. And a man who wore out people half his age, his body deteriorated and he died within a matter of weeks. Because he chose. When he was here, he chose to do what the Bible said he could do because he had a revelation that this is just my body, this is my house, and it's going to obey me. The real me is on the inside. And I can, I can renew my strength as, as the eagles. And he stood on that verse all the time and just went. And then when he decided he was done, he was done. Well, would to God that we could do that. But if we're in neutral, we can't go anywhere. We can't direct where we're going. We're just going to follow the current. So how do I stay out of neutral? Well, I find somebody that has faith and patience and I imitate them. And it's interesting. The two words there for faith and patience, the word for faith is literally pistis, which is the most common word translated faith. It's exactly what Hebrews 11 says. It's believing that something that the Bible has promised you that you don't see in your life right now, you believe that you have it. But the word patience there is interesting. It's the Greek word macrothumia. Macro being large. We use that all the time. We have micro and macro. Macro means large, but usually in the New Testament, when you see macro, it's not just talking about big. It's talking about a long period of time. But it's paired here with the Greek word thumia, which means heat or passion. A lot of times it's translated anger. As you get passionate, you get angry. Kind of the reason, you know, I've turned off the news. I don't watch it anymore because I get too passionate. I want to grab things and throw them at the screen. And yet I really don't want to break my TV. So I, for me, I just it's rare that I even turn the news on. Like if, if, if the world's going to come to an end, God will let me know. Other than that, I don't care. I just don't care what the politicians are going to do. If, if they were calling me for my advice, I might watch the news. But they really don't care what I think, none of them. So why watch it and why get all worked up about it? But Paul says here that we're to stay, we're to imitate people who have faith, but also have long-lasting passions. Remember, we just read there in Philippians 3.10, the fellowship of his passions. We're to have the same passion that Jesus had. And here's the problem. A lot of us can have faith. But our passion wanes. It's like when, you know, springtime comes and, and it starts getting warmer and all of a sudden it's like, well, it's time for me to get back in shape. I'm going to head to the gym. And the first week you make it three days. And you work out 45 minutes every time you go. And the next week you still make it three days. But by the third week it's like, well... I only made it twice this week, and I was kind of in a hurry, so I only got 30 minutes in. And the farther you go, your mindset is, i got to go work out, but your actual practice, your passion for doing it falls off, and before long, you're not doing it at all. Your determination wasn't the problem. It was your passion for what you were doing fell off. That's what Paul's talking about here. You won't slip your transmission into neutral, spiritually speaking, if you will keep your faith and your passion hot. That's why Paul told Timothy, stir up the gifts that are within you. Well, why would I need to stir them up? Because if you don't stir them up, they'll go dead. Your passions are just like a fire. One of the reasons I think Paul uses this word. If you've ever had a, a campfire, you have a fire in your fireplace, sometimes you need to take the poker and you need to stir it up. You need to get all the stuff back in there and it will revive itself. If you just leave it alone, you can have plenty of fuel, but it will still die down. But if you stir it up, suddenly it starts producing a lot more heat. Well, we need to do that with our passions.
We need to stir ourselves up to do what God wants us to do. Paul said it in, in um, Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary while doing well, for in due season we shall reap if we don't lose heart. It doesn't say anything about losing your faith. He's talking about losing your heart. You just get tired. I'm not seeing it come to pass, Lord. Well, don't grow weary in well-doing. Get back in the Word and stir yourself up. Make yourself more familiar. Go back to the scriptures that you've been standing on. It's good sometimes to have a prayer journal. Not necessarily just to keep yourself in line with prayer, but to write down what you're believing God to do in your life. And go back and look at the scriptures and say, I haven't really been doing much of this lately. I need to stir myself up in this area. In this area. Amen? The reason being, if we look at Ephesians chapter 1, go back there, verse 7 and 8. <clears throat> in verse 7 of Ephesians 1, it says, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's a, that's a fact. If you're a Christian, you're forgiven, you have through His blood but it's according to the riches of His grace. God's riches are inexhaustible, and His grace is inexhaustible. But notice how He manifests the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Again, and I'm not trying to get real technical, but the two words there for wisdom and prudence, the word wisdom is the Greek word sophia, Aristotle used Sophia a lot in his writings, and he defines Sophia this way. It's the knowledge of the most precious things. Sophia is the answer to the eternal problems of life and death, and God and man, and time and eternity. Sophia is the, the, the knowledge that you get. You're in Ephesians, you don't have to turn over there, but in Ephesians 2.6, it says that Christ made us to sit together, for God the Father made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. We have this intimate spiritual, literally Sophia means a knowledge from above. It's a knowledge and a wisdom that we get from being seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's our rightful place. That's where we belong. That's where we are. But it's not enough. He also used the word prudence there, which is, and I'm going to mispronounce this, phronesis. Which, if you look at the definition of phronesis, in fact, uh, William Barclay in his translation, rather than using the word prudence, he uses the, the phrase, all sound sense. And it deals with... Um, what enables men to meet and to solve the practical problems of everyday life and living. We need to take the, the knowledge that we get seated with Christ in heavenly places and apply that to our, our life here on earth. If we don't take the knowledge that we have about heaven and make our, and, and really direct our lives from that, and make our lives line up with what heaven says we should have, then we've only done half the battle. Now, I'll be honest with you. I preach hard seated in, in, in heavenly places. I preach hard about who we are in Christ because I have seen over the years that that is where most people, they just don't have a revelation of who they are in Christ. They see themselves as worms, as sinners, as no good I don't know why in the world Jesus would have ever bothered to save me. Well, I don't understand why he did it either. But that doesn't alter the fact that he did. And it doesn't alter the fact that that salvation is now mine. It doesn't alter the fact that I am seated with him in heavenly places. But I need to take that and apply it to my life. And where I see the problem is a lot of people, a lot of Christians, know they're seated with God in heavenly places 
but they still just allow the, the world and the world system to just take them wherever it will. And they're living at, at a level far below what God has said they could live at. Amen? Now, how do we put our faith in this? Well, we're going to close with this. Let's go over to Romans chapter 8. And I have, over the years, I've had Romans 8, 28 thrown at me as a justification for any bad thing that came along. Something bad happens and somebody will say, well, we know that all things work together for those who love God. God will take this circumstance, you know, you just lost whatever, but God will make good out of that. Well, there is a truth to that. God can take the worst circumstance in the world and bring good out of it. But that's not what that scripture means. That's not what it's talking about. If you back up to verse 26, and we'll read it in context. Verse 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we what we should pray for as we ought. There's our weakness. Notice he says, we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. In other words, you ought to know what to pray every time God tells you to go to prayer. But most of the time we don't. That's our weakness. Lord, I just don't know how to pray over this situation. Well, you ought to. It kind of reminds me of when the disciples were, were going across the lake and the storm came up. They went to the back of the boat where Jesus was asleep. He wasn't worried. He said, we're going to the other side. And he fully expected to get to the other side. So he just went to sleep. And they came back and said, Lord, don't you care that we're dying? And he got up, he rebuked the storm, and then he turned on the disciples and said, Oh, you of little faith. The implication there is, why in the world didn't you all stop this storm? Why are you waking me up? I was tired. I was resting. You could have handled this. You've got the ability to handle this storm. Why did you get me up? I tell you, the, the disciples thought, I know what they thought. How in the world are we supposed to handle a storm? I've never rebuked a storm and had it stop. But Jesus knew they had that ability in them. He had much more faith in them than they had in them. And that's part of our problem. We don't know what we should be praying for, but we ought to. So what's the answer? But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew He also predestined, to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, He also called. Whom He called, He justified. Whom He justified, He also glorified. Jesus, or Paul just went through this whole series of events that Jesus is doing in our lives. And he's saying, you should be praying out the, God's will. Well, how do I do that? Well, I'm not going to go over there, but in Ephesians, um, or no, excuse me, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, one of the letters to Corinthians, chapter 14, it says, He who prays in an unknown tongue prays out mysteries. One translation says he prays out divine mysteries. It's part of the reason that God has given us the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the ability to pray in tongues. Because we, when we don't know how we should pray, we need to hit our knees and pray in the Spirit until we know what God wants us to pray. And then once we know what He wants us to pray, then we can pray that out. But most of us are too busy doing things that just don't matter.
they deal with earthly things, things that are going to pass away. We're working so hard that we don't have time to pray to figure out what God wants out of us, what God's will for our lives are. Now, sometimes he will give you, well, if you ask him, he will always give you a scripture that applies to your situation. But sometimes that divine guidance you won't find in a particular scripture. If you're not married and you're looking for a spouse, you can't go to a particular scripture and say, well, this is the woman for you or this is the man for you. Now, you can go and find general traits that you ought to be looking for in a spouse, but you ought to be, believe me, if you're thinking of getting married, that ought to be, you should be doing nothing but hitting your knees, praying in the Spirit, asking God, who is my perfect partner? And don't you dare budge until you know that. And then when you know it, go pursue them. And if it's God and they'll listen to God, it'll work out. And if, and if it is God's will and they won't listen to God and they turn you down, then God will get somebody better. God will never ask you to do something. Now, even Paul. Paul was called to go up into Macedonia. And in Acts it says that he never made it. Why? Because he got resistance from the enemy. There are times when God will call you to do stuff and men will get involved and men will sabotage it. I've seen it dozens of times over a 30-year career being a pastor. People can hinder what God wants to do. But if you're following God to your, the best of your ability and someone else hinders you getting there, God will take you around another way and get you something better. Or he'll get you there through a different avenue. But the point is, I've got to figure out what God's will is for this situation. I need to come out of bed just like Jesus did and say, Lord, what's your will for me today? What long term do I need to be standing on? What do I need to be looking for? That's why in, in the Gospels it says when the Holy Spirit comes, He will show you things to come. He's given us the ability to see what will come in our lives. Now, he's not going to give you every step. He's not going to tell you all the details of your life for the next five years. But he will give you, he will guide your steps as you start to walk things out. He will give you step by step by step. Some things, he'll give you an inkling and you sort of, well, I think this is sort of where I'm going. And by the time you get there, and you, you start to see it manifest, it becomes clearer and clearer, and you know, yeah, that's, that's what I was seeing. I, didn't re I couldn't focus real well on it, but I saw that, and so I'm going to put my faith to that. He will give you chapter and verse if you can find a verse that applies, but if not, he'll just speak to you directly. I've had him do it to me. I've, had him, I've, I've told the story about the time I was suicidal. He didn't give me chapter and verse. He just came in and sat down in the room with me and said, just hang on. If you'll just hang on, it'll get better. That little word, and it, it takes me longer to say it, to explain it, than it took for it to happen. But it changed my life in an instant. That's what we're talking about. Now, God can do those things sovereignly, but he's called us to pray dutifully to work and to pray and to give ourselves to prayer, to give ourselves to study into the Word, to get His will for our lives and then press into it and put our faith on it. And then if you start finding that your passions are, are starting to wane, go back and whatever you did to get there, initially start stirring those things, things up again. It's like with, with, and I'll use this analogy because Paul uses it in Ephesians, the best analogy he's come up with for Christ and the church was the, the, the analogy or the, the institution of marriage. If you've been married for, oh, I don't know, 10 days, let alone 30 years, you can reach a point where it's like, we're more roommates than we are lovers anymore. Well, how do you get past that? Do the things you did when you were dating. 
What did you do when you first started dating? What did you do? What was it then in your spouse that made you love them? Start talking about those things instead of the stupid little things that irritate you. What is it? And then start duplicating the actions. Rather than coming home from work all stinky and sweaty, come home from work, jump in the shower, clean up, and have a date. Well, we can't afford to go out. You don't have to go out to have a date. Have a date at home. Husbands, treat your wives the way you treated them when you were dating them. I'll guarantee you, for most of us, that would be a dramatic change of how we deal with our wives. Wives, just keep your elbows in. Don't elbow your husband here. This, that's not appropriate. And guys, just look straight ahead. It'll be all right. Wives, same thing. Things that you did when you were dating, do them now. If you will do what you did to make your spouse fall in love with you, you will find that you fall back in love again. And I don't care how far gone that relationship is. If you will start doing what you did to get into the situation, you will end up doing, having the situation turn around. It works every time, and it works with the Bible. This, that's what the macrothumia means. Stir up that passion. That passion has to be long-lasting. Why? Because sometimes it does, faith is not going to manifest itself instantly. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.